MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, March 15th, the Ides of March 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Lots of news this week, including the censure of Jenna Ellis by the Colorado State Bar and the seizure of Igor Sechin's plane. <laughs> I love all this, uh, seizing the Russian assets and using it to help Ukraine. And we're going to talk about the new House subcommittee investigating the January 6th Select Committee, another investigation of the investigations by Republicans. And we'll be speaking with Rep. Dan Goldman about the Jim Jordan Weaponization Committee and the oversight hearings. But first... Uh, we need to thank our new patrons. If you want to become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar an episode, um, we will shout out your name and you can pick whatever name you want uh, and make us say it. So first up uh, is our list of new patrons this week. Jamie Kirkland, Just Listening, Mary Kolb, Leslie Lebb, Christy Moore, Brian Stefanik, Sue Brown, There's Only One Catch, uh, A.K.I. Aki, maybe? Julie Beth of Tarth, very nice, like Brienne of Tarth, Maria, Francine McCasey, Cheryl Harris, and Susan Kahn. Thank you so much to our patrons. You make this show possible. If you sign up for $2 an episode level, you get the free bonus weekly wrap-up, unscripted, unedited, raw, extravaganza, bonanza thing that we put out every <laughs> every weekend, Pete and I. So thank you again. If you want to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. All right, let's get this thing kicked off with the new committee investigating the investigators because we don't have enough of that over the past five, six years, for God's sake. So from NBC (laughs) News reports, a Republican-controlled House committee launched an inquiry last Wednesday into the Democrat-controlled January 6th committee, which a staff member said will review whether the pertinent information about the riot was omitted from the high-profile examination of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Now, You can tell they're serious because the people that the Republicans named to this committee, and it's only six folks, they're four Republicans, Barry Loudermilk, who's the chair, along with Morgan Griffith, Greg Murphy, and Anthony Desposito, and two Democrats, Norma Torres and Derek Kilmer. Now, the reason I was kind of making a little bit of fun about how serious they are, you may remember Barry Loudermilk as the congressman who, on January 5th, the day where... Congress was closed to tours. Nobody was going in and out. Nevertheless, personally gave a group of individuals a tour of uh, the halls of Congress. And the reason we know that is because the CCTV footage, in part of him showing these folks around where they were busily engaged, taking videos and photographs 
of dark stairwells, tunnels, and other passageways, which are not at all, if you've ever been on a tour of the Capitol, and those are the least, those are not the things you want to see. That's not the rotunda. It's not, you know, any of the chambers. And so the, the immediate concern and sort of what the January 6th committee alluded to was whether or not these were sort of surveillance and reconnaissance operations the day before the insurrection, giving people an idea of ingress and egress routes to the Capitol above, rather, other than above ground. So in other words, if you were trying to get in from buildings outside the Capitol complex on the other side of Constitution or Independence Avenue, if you were trying to escape through different routes, those are the sorts of things that you would want to see if you were planning to uh, you know, assault the Capitol the following day, which, surprise, surprise, is in fact uh, what happened. Now, according again to this NBC reporting, uh, it'll be looking to roughly 2 million documents and records. Uh, which the House Administration Committee obtained from the House Rules Committee after the January 6th panel was dissolved. The House Administration Committee has launched a portal where you can submit tips oh. if you're in the public for them to dive into with their investigative acumen. And the goal is to analyze how the panel conducted the investigation. Now, you know, this is just, Allison, one, one more thing. You know, it's like John Durham. It's like Jeff Jensen. It's like... Bill Barr's MO to just bring in this constant stream of people to investigate the investigators. And at best, all it does is muddy up the entire playing field and sort of start trying to revise history of what happened. But, you know, at worst, you get, you know, a lot of people dragged in who did absolutely nothing wrong. You get wasted taxpayer money pursuing things that, that absolutely don't have any need to be looked at. And people who are doing a good job, people who are doing their job, you know, whether they're Capitol Police officers, whether they're Metropolitan Police Department officers, folks who are putting their lives on the line that day now have to be subjected to some potentially jerk showing up with a subpoena, asking them to testify about what did or didn't happen. I, it's just really disappointing. Yeah, it's kind of a slap in the face. It is a definite slap in the face, I should say, to to that law to that group of law enforcement officers, um, you know, the uh, and, you know, the widow of Brian Sicknick and. Just, I mean, the 140 to 150 officers who were injured or, or who died uh, because of, of January 6th. And I, I really got to drill down on Barry Loudermilk here because, uh, you know, if you remember last year on, on May 12th, and this was, you know, pursuant to the January 6th committee, this is why he hates the January 6th committee, because they made him look like an idiot. They, <laughs> on, on, on May 12th of last year, he said, I didn't give any tours. That's what he said. Four days later on May, or excuse me, a week later on May 19th. Okay. I gave a tour to a family that had Oops. some young children. Oops. The next day. Okay. It was a family with young children and their guests. And then a month after that on June 14th. Okay. It was 16 people. You got me. And, you know, here's a little passage. Members of the mob carried flags and turned the flagpoles into weapons. Michael Foy from Wixom, Michigan, carried a hockey stick to the ellipse. He draped a Trump flag over it. Hours later, Foy used that hockey stick to repeatedly beat police officers in the inaugural tunnel. Former New York City police officer Thomas Webster carried a Marine flag, which he later used to attack an officer holding the rioters back at the Lower West Plaza. Another individual, Danny Hamilton, carried a flag with a sharpened tip, which he said was for a certain person, to which Trevor Hallgren, who had traveled with him uh, with Hamilton to D.C., responded, it has begun. And later... Halgren commented that there's no escape. Pelosi, Schumer, Nadler, we're coming for you. Even AOC, we're coming to take you out, to pull you out by your hair. And on January 5th, Halgren, that guy, took a tour of the Capitol with Representative Barry Loudermilk, during which he took pictures of hallways and staircases. 
So that is who was in Barry Loudermilk's quote unquote tour group. And so it's it's no surprise that they're calling this a tourist visit because that's what they consider a tour uh, is to show tunnels and stairwells and staircases I, I, you know, oh, and I, but I was just taking a picture of the eagle sconce lighting that was in that stairwell. That's all. I would, you know, if I and, recall and correctly, so, in fact, you also took a picture of it, like a normal tourist <laughs> went to that same stairwell and you know took a somewhat skeptical <laughs> selfie of uh, of that sconce, <laughs> the eagle sconce. Yeah, I did, but it is a beautiful sconce, well, Pete. I, I, but I don't I'm think sure. Halgren yeah. was there for the sconce. <laughs> He's there for the sconce. Um, yeah, that's that's yeah, I like that. I'm I'm just here for the sconce. Uh that we should get shirts made. <laughs> so that's who's leading this uh committee investigating the January sixth committee, because you know, the January sixth committee got the truth out of what Barry Laudermilk was doing on January fifth, which I still think uh needs to be further investigated. Um, I don't know if the, the Department of Justice is doing that or anything like that. But, you know, again, it's going to be very that's kind of stuff is really difficult to prove criminally. But um, but we do know in the in the court of public opinion what Barry Loudermilk did on January 5th, who was in his tour group and that he lied multiple times about it, uh, which just shows consciousness of guilt. And now here he is in charge of investigating the oranges, which is whenever I, whenever somebody investigates the investigators, I call it the oranges, um, <laughs> that, you know, of, of this particular investigation. It is their M.O. They did it with Durham, like you said. They, you know, where he just t- went trouncing all over the globe trying to dig up dirt on, you know, on on the intelligence communities and Department of Justice and, and basically try to dismantle our institutions. And so, you know, I, I just see that this is a larger continuation of that effort. Yeah. And it's and it's particularly egregious because at least, you know, Durham had a decent reputation before he got thrown into this. And, you know, he squandered it, in my opinion, you know, associating himself with Barr and Trump and, you know, his is completely rewritten what history otherwise might have said about him. But when you louder milk is not only is it outrageous that they would set up this committee. But then to go pick somebody like Loudermilk, it's like, you know, saying, okay, we have a Homeland Security Committee, so let's get, oh, the secessionist, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's babbling on about wanting a national divorce. I mean, it's not only do you do something that's objectionable and awful, but then you pick the most egregious person you can find to throw in there. And again, you know, to your point, I I think it was... uh, Officer Sicknick's family, who just, who had this impassioned letter, just just leave us alone. Why can't you just let this go? And so, not only it's just it it is not only designed to inflame and antagonize, but at every step from the mission of and the staffing and the leadership, you couldn't pick more antagonistic, awful people if you tried. And that's what I again it burns me up too. And I just you know we'll see where it goes. It's a you know a five person subcommittee, which is it's tiny. So, you know, we'll see what comes, but I, it just, it, it angers me a great deal. Yeah. I, I'm waiting for the next committee to be a subcommittee on, uh, let's see, uh, separation of powers led by uh, Rep. Scott Perry or something. Like, 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 what could they dream up next? Like, yeah, I don't no, have- or Like law, law enforcement and, you know, the ability to break encryption on cellular telephones and encrypted communications and put him, put Perry in charge of that, right? I mean, j- j- just find the people who are at the forefront of bad behavior on a very particular thing and then identify that person, right? I, it, right, it's yeah. Just... Fourth Amendment criminal defendant rights by <laughs> Rep. Scott Perry. Yeah, it's just- <laughs> it, But, you know- I have for for a long time, like one of the reasons um, I dove so 
hard into the news and became a news reporter and started reporting on the Mueller investigation and everything is because to me, knowledge is the anxiety is the enemy of anxiety. And I thought maybe the the more I knew about what Trump world was doing, the better I could predict things and, and be less shocked and surprised when things came down the pike. But it never fails to shock me. I'm not, I'm not surprised, I should say, but I, I'm always shocked because I just don't have the cold, dead fascist heart necessary to dream these things up. So it's so hard to figure out where they're going to go next. But, you know, I got to I got to say, I wouldn't be surprised if Rep. Scott Perry is put in charge of some committee looking into the exact crimes that he's guilty of or the investigators investigating the crimes that he's guilty of. Or maybe he'll be called in as a witness into the weaponization committee by Jim Jordan, uh, you know, something along that, along those lines. That's just, this is how they operate. And it's all part of the big lie, dismantling uh, trust in our institutions. Uh, it's all part of that, uh, you know, the autocracy is afoot, as, as Rachel Maddow says. Yeah, it is. And I mean, thank God for two-year congressional term limits, because I do think, I, I hope at least what we saw with a lot of these MAGA candidates who were vote deniers getting you know, beaten at the polls. I hope that some of this continued behavior when it comes to the congressional elections, at least in 2024, that a lot of this nonsense will stop. But you're absolutely right. I mean, this is continuing the big lie. This is largely, you know, undermining all the belief and in, in, in faith and support in government, but particularly the deep state and law enforcement. That's all for Trump. And so, you know, there's, even though, yeah, it's two years, you can do a lot of damage in two years. So I'm, I'm grumpy today, but it is what it is. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm also a little bit worried about possible foreign adversaries exploiting the, um, I guess, the frustration a lot of us feel with the slowness of these investigations by Department of Justice. Uh, and that's, I think, why we're seeing a lot of, uh, uh, I, I think we're seeing that frustration being exploited. I'll just, I'll just say that. Um, because we do have legitimate concerns uh, but like all things uh, that Americans have legitimate concerns about, for, uh, you know, Russia can swoop in and sow chaos using those legitimate concerns. And uh, we've seen it. We saw it in 2016. We saw it in 2018, again in 2020. Uh, so there's no reason to think it's not going on now. But, you know, I think it explains why there's a, a, a bigger outcry for the slowness of the Department of Justice versus the slowness of the Manhattan DA or the Fulton County District Attorney. Nobody's indicted Trump yet, but everybody seems to be really mad at our federal institutions about it. Uh, I'm not saying, again, that no one has the right to be frustrated. I'm just saying, you know, we, I think we need to keep our head on a swivel when it comes to being exploited, have our, having our frustrations, fears, and anger being exploited by, by foreign adversaries. So uh, we'll, we'll see where that ends up and where it takes us. But, you know, speaking of committees, Pete, I'm really excited to announce we're going to be talking to Representative Dan Goldman next, who sits on a ton of committees. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait. So why don't we, uh, the sooner we go to break, the sooner we can talk to him. So let's do that. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This last week saw more hearings in the Oversight Committee, as well as a report on the whistleblowers issued by the Democrats on the Judiciary Subcommittee for Weaponization. And joining us to discuss is the lead prosecutor for Trump's first impeachment and a Democratic member of the Weaponization Subcommittee the Committee on Oversight and Accountability, from New York's 10th District, Representative Dan Goldman. Welcome, Congressman. Thanks uh, so much. First, Great to be here with you. 
Yeah, thanks very much for making the time. I want to start out by you know acknowledging that even the Republicans are saying the committee isn't doing so well. Or the Rolling Stone quoted some you know unnamed Republican saying that you know the stuff on live television would make us look like morons. But you know, nevertheless, there are at least two I think hearings, maybe three hearings in, and they don't by all sort of neutral media reporting and observers don't seem to be going very well. Why? What are they trying to achieve here? It doesn't seem like the the initial stated aims are going very well. Well, I often analogize it to my days as a prosecutor when it was my job to put on a case and present the evidence. And you know this well, Pete, but um, and then you would have defense lawyers who were often very effective, but they would basically poke holes in the government's case and their defense was usually not a complete defense, but a partial defense. And then when they had to actually, if uh, they didn't always have to, but if they did decide to put on a defense case, you could see that the defense lawyers had real difficulties actually putting on an affirmative case. And it feels very much similar to that with this weaponization subcommittee. You know, Jim Jordan, I think, is, uh, is, is talented in messaging and in identifying sort of wedge issues, very, you know, discrete issues that he can hammer home over and over. But the notion of actually um, putting on a full investigation and presenting supporting facts and evidence uh, to validate a you know, conclusion is not something that I think he nor the Republicans are very good at. And what we have here are um, a bunch of allegations and conclusions that they have been making for months. And now it's on them to actually support them with witness testimony, with documents, with evidence, with facts. And they're unable to do that because they jumped to the conclusions before actually doing the investigation. And so to the extent that, you know, there are people who are saying, oh, these these hearings are a failure. Um, part of it is that there there is a conclusion going into the hearing that then they're trying to support. They're doing it in reverse. Yeah. And that's sort of the M.O. here, right, is is to muddy the waters with with disinformation. They did it when they uh, put Durham on investigating the origins of the Russia investigation, who, who when you know, when. When it came down where the rubber meets the road, the cases just sort of fall apart uh, because they're just tissue thinner. There's just absolutely, like you said, no facts. And some of the more powerful moments I've noticed in these hearings is when you confront Jim Jordan directly, uh, particularly about his whistleblowers, his dozens and dozens of whistleblowers that he says that he has. You put out this, uh, the Dems on on that subcommittee put out a, a report about these whistleblowers and and one of the questions I had, I noticed at the at the end of the executive summary of that report, you talk about uh, Trump aide Kosh Patel and and Russell Vaught uh, giving money and jobs to these whistleblowers shortly after the twenty twenty two midterm elections. And um, I know that um, Special Counsel Jack Smith is investigating a lot of the recipients of payments from Trump PACs. Uh, and, I, you know, I know Kash Patel doesn't just have this money sitting around or these jobs funded by the, you know, Dement Meadows nonprofit that took a one million dollar payment from from Trump PAC from a Trump PAC. Have you has the committee at all or the Democrats on the committee, uh, the weaponization committee, been in contact at all with the Department of Justice or, or the special counsel's office about about these potential payments? 
not to my knowledge. Uh, I don't even think I would venture to do that um, because I know what the answer would be, which is, you know, thanks, but no thanks. We're not going to talk about it. Now, if we had information um, that would be valuable for them to consider, we it, it's a one-way street, as Pete knows. And so, we, you know, I'm sure we would give it to them. But I, I, you, you raise, I think, a couple of really important points, Allison, that are, are worth fleshing out a little bit. The, the first is that um, the last Congress, ostensibly, um, the Judiciary Committee Republicans did their own, you know, sort of secret investigation uh, using, based on what they call whistleblowers, who, by the way, uh, do not qualify at least the three that have come in as whistleblowers. And they issued a report. And that is clearly what they're basing their dozens and dozens of, quote, whistleblowers, unquote, on. Um, but, you know, the, the problem with witnesses like this, uh, who are bought and paid for by the Donald Trump ecosystem, is that uh, they're not cross-examined by the sort of um, the, the folks who are scheming to present this evidence and launder it through a congressional committee. And when the Democratic staff asked sort of basic, simple questions, you know, that, that you would think any witness would be prepared to answer, they couldn't answer them. But the bias is so apparent. And the fact that they are you know, bought, paid for, supplied with jobs, um, getting, you know, promotion on Fox News or wherever because of this testimony. And then yet the testimony demonstrates they have no firsthand knowledge of anything of which they speak. Um, you start to realize that this is a, a lot of hot air. And part of the reason I asked Jim Jordan for the notes about these whistleblowers is that he wrote a whole report on him. Um, I'm presuming that no, that report was not written based on memory from interviews with them. And they didn't include Democratic staff. They certainly didn't include Democratic members in this. And so they're meeting in secret with these people who are now associated with Cash Patel and Mark Meadows. And we know Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan are incredibly close for going back years and years and years. Um, and it's this whole sort of Trumpian world that they're coming from. And so let's see what the notes are. Let's see, you know, what they actually said to you. Um, because my suspicion is they're sitting in a room, you know, more or less trying to figure out what they're going to say. And then let's put it in a report and all right, now I know what the game plan is. Let's come in and, and we'll testify. I would very much like for them to, to the three that we've had in to testify in a public hearing. Why don't come on in? Let's, uh, let's let the country see, uh, what these so-called whistleblowers know about, you know, FBI misconduct. And I don't think it's a surprise that we have not yet had a hearing notice with those three witnesses. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me of the uh, election lawsuit affidavit witnesses that the Republicans, Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis brought in 
and then completely fell apart. But as lawyers, they were, you know, a lot of them were sanctioned for for not following up properly on those leads and presenting evidence properly. They some even had to in Michigan. I know some of the crack and strike force even had to take classes on how to file pleadings uh, with witnesses because they didn't look into any of the any of the facts presented by any of their witnesses. It just it's, it's, it seems to be one of the ways that they go about doing this. Like you said, they have a conclusion in mind and they just sort of develop these quote unquote witnesses to to back up their their ideas, their conspiracies. That's true. And, you know, the, the unfortunate hypocrisy of all of this is there's actually a subcommittee called the Weaponization of Federal Government. But it is not investigating the John Durham investigation and the degree to which government was clearly weaponized as a political tool for Donald Trump through that investigation. It's not investigating the fact that Michael Cohen, Michael Cohen was put in jail so that Donald Trump could prevent him from publishing a book. Um, talk about an infringement on the First Amendment. Is We're not talking about you know book banning all over the country, which is another violation of the First Amendment. There's a lot of weaponization of the federal government. It has just been done by Donald Trump and the Republicans over the last six years. Uh, yeah. I mean, you look at, you know, Pete here, you look at Andy McCabe. I mean, there's so many examples, you know. Me, um, I don't know if you know my story, uh, Congressman, but my podcast, the Mueller She Wrote podcast, was investigated by Office of General Counsel under the Trump administration. And I was removed from my job in the federal government uh, as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. very interested. In, I'm very interested in the actual weaponization of the Department of Justice, too. Yeah, exactly. But it is uh, it's certainly not anything that uh, they have been discussing yet. Yeah, I want to dive in a little bit to you were talking about it, and I know in uh, hearing you dove into asking uh, Congressman Jordan about like, look, who are these whistleblowers allegedly? What are their names? Where are the notes? Where are all these things? It seems like there's sort of a pattern of administrative bad behavior. At last hearing, I think ranking member Plaskett noted that in response to Jordan saying, hey, look, we gave you access to this. She said, yeah, at eight o'clock last night. When I was gone and you were gone, is there is there a pattern or are there other things going on sort of in in an administrative process realm that it seems like they're playing games across the board. Is that happening in other areas that you've seen? They're definitely not forthcoming um, in turning over materials. I mean, the other example is, you know, they've cited a number of documents that these so-called whistleblowers have provided them, but they have not provided any of those documents to the Democratic staff. Uh, they are claiming that it is standard practice for whistleblowers. That is not the case. That is not true. Um, and certainly when I was a staff member on the House Intelligence Committee, ultimately leading the impeachment investigation, whenever we got information related from, you know, our information requests or subpoenas or whatever, we turned it over to the minority staff. We were obligated to do that. That is what the rules of the House are. And they're not doing that. Um, in the in the end, you know, it's um, we're we're still able to shed light on it without that stuff. But they're playing fast and loose with the rules. Um, their their hypocrisy, you know, knows no bounds. When I was, you know, as you may remember, with the Ukraine whistleblower, you know, they were trying to out that whistleblower. Um, even when Michael Cohen testified before the House Intelligence Committee, they went bananas when they under they heard that Democratic staff met with the witness. 
um, without Republican staff. And yet here we are with dozens and dozens of, quote, whistleblowers they're meeting with without any Democratic staff, without turning over the notes. So, yes, they're they're absolutely playing fast and loose with uh, all of the rules and, and regulations, trying to gain every advantage they can. But again, you know, the facts are not on their side. So they're trying to sort of cut corners, skirt the issues, be able to reframe things the way they want. And but without actually giving us uh, any of the underlying material. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, I want to pivot a little bit to the Oversight Committee. We had a hearing this week about the uh, quote unquote Twitter files with Taibbi and Schellenberger, uh, who were they were just they had a real Corey Lewandowski feel to to them in their, in their testimony, just very smug and uh, disrespectful, I thought. And I, I, I want to ask you a question about that. But I also just in general, I, I walk the line between. On one side, let the Republicans make a mockery of this process because it's going to hurt them in 2024. And on the other side, it it's a gut punch to see them disrespect the institution of the House of Representatives. Uh, but it's, I saw that in, in that oversight uh, hearing this past week. What can the Dems on the committee do to get the rest of those Twitter files? I mean, for them to obfuscate and say, oh, I'm not going to give you my sources. I'm a journalist. Um, you know, they've been bragging about <laughs> Elon Musk, uh, you know, giving these Twitter files and what, you know, what he has over to Matt Taibbi. Uh, but, you know, what 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 are we looking at? What, what can the Dems do to maybe get the rest of the Twitter files? I mean, is there anything I know you don't have subpoena power or is this just something that you're just sort of I mean, what do you do? You just let it go or you just do your best in session to to counter the the disinformation? Look, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you are correct. You are very understandably um, confused, and I don't say that uh, pejoratively, that the hearing with Schellenberger and Taibbi was on the Twitter files, but that was in the weaponization subcommittee. But there was a Twitter files hearing in the oversight committee the week before. There, All these committees are running the <laughs> same playbook on the same issues that are, are really going nowhere. I, uh, you know, I, th I think there's a real conversation that should be had about, um, you know, in this day and age with social media on the proliferation of online uh, news and information um, and what the First Amendment contours are around, you know, our speech in comparison or in consideration of very legitimate law enforcement objectives about keeping foreign bad actors out of our elections, about maintaining our national security, about maintaining our public health. And it's not an easy conversation, and it's a conversation that is really worth having. My frustration with you know bringing these journalists into a hearing is they are ostensibly at the vanguard of having those conversations, except, you know, Matt Taibbi doesn't even acknowledge that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. He doesn't even acknowledge that it's a legitimate law enforcement objective of the FBI to stop foreign governments from interfering in our elections through social media or hacking and dumping or, um, you know, all sorts of other cyber warfare. And we can't have a really meaningful and productive conversation when you don't acknowledge the facts that are driving that conversation. 
So uh, I think it's a difficult, it's it's a an important discussion to have as to how to balance those two really, really important objectives. But we're not having them in these hearings, even with these ostensibly, you know, neutral or independent journalists, because they're not uh, acknowledging the facts on the ground. Yeah. And it struck me, too, that, you know, you had these two journalists who were extraordinarily skeptical about the FBI's role and the U.S. government's role with social media. And, I, you know, skepticism is great. Push and probe and make sure that stories check out. But when you have, on the one hand, that level of skepticism about the United States government, which, on the other hand, you absolutely refuse to even consider that an authoritarian like Vladimir Putin might involve himself in any way, shape, or form. And, oh, you know, an indictment is merely an indictment. Nothing's been proven in a court of law. That's not evidence. I, I was struck by the disconnect, and I wanted to go to, you know, the, um, the global threat report that the USIC gave to the House and Senate as part of the Worldwide Threat Brief last week, noted in Russia, and I want to talk a little bit about disinformation, that's saying Russia presents one of the most serious foreign influence threats to the United States because it uses its intelligence services proxies and wide-ranging influence tools to try and divide Western alliances and increase its sway around the world while attempting to undermine U.S. global standing, sow discord in the United States, and influence U.S. voters in decision-making. And then there's an interesting little uh, sentence within a bullet, same report, and this is Russia, it will try to strengthen ties to U.S. persons in the media and politics in hopes of developing vectors for future influence operations. So, uh, you know, I think that absolutely lines up with what you're saying about the concern of, you know, clearly Russia is doing it, but it's not just Russia. And is there a path? I mean, it it seems like Russia, unfortunately, because it's so linked to Trump, has become a very politicized issue where nobody, at least on the sort of Republican side, is willing to give at all to what should be a common sense acceptance that, yes, Russia is attempting to interfere in our political process. Do you see a way to approach it from a different angle? I don't know if it's you know approaching it from the standpoint of China or Iran or some other country other than Russia, but I just I, I agree with you that it's an enormous threat, and I just don't know how to break this logjam as long as Donald Trump is in the picture politically. I don't, I'm curious your thoughts. I, I think you're right that it is problematic, and and you would think okay, going through China or Iran, who are widely considered to be um, if not, you know, uh, uh, enemies, but certainly competitors uh, by the Republicans. But then what they'll say is, well, there's been no proof that China and Iran have ever, ever interfered in our elections, um, or certainly not to the degree that Russia right. it has been, you know, demonstrated by a unanimous assessment of the intelligence community, by the Senate Intelligence committee report and 100 pages of very, very detailed evidence outlined in the special counsel's indictments of the Russians. And, you know, it's just disappointing to hear uh, someone who who holds himself out to be this, you know, independent journalist um, refuse to acknowledge that, refuse to even recognize that maybe you're not getting the full picture if you never saw Trump's efforts to take down Christy Teigen's tweets and all you're seeing, you know, is Adam Schiff or Angus King reaching out and, and that maybe, you know, you ought to think twice. And once you start to realize that, or maybe, you know, the fact that the Washington Post did an analysis of the hard drive uh, that uh, Giuliani gave to the New York Post and found that it had been altered 
and the fact that the original source of the laptop, uh, John Mac Isaac, had also said that it had been altered. Maybe that means something more than you just responding, well, CBS and Politicos also did it and said it was, you know, authentic. And it's just, you know, it's clearly, it's clearly slanted. And uh, one of the frustrating parts, you know, of these committees is that they are clearly designed to, to do partisan damage. I mean, Jim Jordan said that at the CPAC conference last summer, that the weaponization subcommittee is going to be used to damage President Biden and hopefully help to elect Donald Trump. So that's what we're getting. And we're going to continue to get that until other Republicans, as you cited in that anonymously in that article, and there have been others on the record who have said, show me some evidence or let's move on. And that's, I think, where we are right now. Completely agree. I, you know, and I just I'm, I'm curious to see if they go uh, if they're able to do that in the future. And I think, you know, Allison, if you want, we've got a, a speed round because I know you're running out of time a little bit here, but some a few questions with shorter answers. And uh, I don't know, Allison, if you want to kick it off. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I'm interested to know what next topics or witnesses uh, Jim Jordan intends to put before the weaponization committee. Do you know even what's coming up next? Do they tell you? I mean, you, it seems like you don't know until eight o'clock the night before. <laughs> Uh, we find out from the media, to be honest. Um, <laughs> God, normally, there are, um, you know, <laughs> there are journalists with sources uh, who will report on upcoming. I learned about this most recent hearing from reading about it in the media, and that's what I expect to happen. Uh, the obvious hearing for us to have would be the three witnesses that they have brought in for transcribed interviews. And I think it's going to be very, very telling about what they think of their investigation uh, as to whether or not they schedule that hearing. Yeah. There's been some talk, uh, I think it was Congressman Gates, but perhaps some others, about trying to remove Democratic members merely because the hearings are going so poorly and having you know very competent, talented uh, former prosecutors like you and others have been uh, harmful to what they're trying to achieve. Have you heard that? Or would they be able to do that if they wanted to? I have not heard that. Uh, at the end of the day, Kevin McCarthy does have total power um, about, over who serves on the committee. Um, it's not a standing committee, so it wouldn't have to be voted on by the full house. It's select committee, so the speaker has ultimate uh, authority over it. Um, so that would be completely up to him. That's interesting. Um, I mean, it would be very interesting to remove uh, a member of a committee due to competence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for the first time it were to happen, for it to be this Congress would probably be some sort of uh, poetic, uh, I don't think justice is not the right word, but certainly appropriate. Yeah. yeah. Now, as a, as a prosecutor, just prosecutor hat, do you think any sitting member of Congress could be indicted for January 6th related activity? Look, I, I hesitate to uh, opine on that because I really don't know all of the evidence. Um, I do think it is obviously very noteworthy that there was probable cause uh, to obtain a search warrant of Scott Perry's cell phone, um, which, you know, as you guys know full well, requires, you know, a showing of evidence that there are, there's likely to be a crime and evidence of that crime on that cell phone. So 
Uh, clearly, there was an investigation uh, related to Scott Perry, who was very centrally involved in the effort um, to remove the attorney general, the acting attorney general, um, and to place Jeffrey Clark uh, in that seat in order to send the letter uh, disavowing the Georgia election. So I have no idea, you know, what other evidence there is. I know Representative Perry is challenging that uh, search warrant, but um, it's noteworthy that they were far along enough uh, in an investigation to seek that, uh, that kind of uh, judicial approval uh, to search his phone. I want to follow up a little bit. You had uh, making some points about thinking as a prosecutor and sort of laying out your case uh, in questioning. As a prosecutor, though, what's the difference in what have you found to be the difference on the one hand between questioning as a prosecutor versus uh, as as a congressman? You know, I'm sure there's some advantages and disadvantages. Do you ever, you know, as you're sitting there saying, okay, I don't need to worry about the federal rules of criminal procedure. I don't need to establish something. I don't need to worry about getting something into evidence. What, how's, how's that adjustment been for you? And what, what's good, what's bad about it? Well, the biggest difference is five minutes. Um, you have a lot more than five minutes to prove your case uh, when you're a prosecutor. And, and the hardest part about this is that you really only have five minutes to um, try to, you know, make whatever uh, point you're trying to make or prove whatever fact you're trying to prove. But you're right. On the flip side, um, there are no rules of evidence. There, uh, <laughs> there are no rules of criminal procedure. Um, you're, you can sort of you know, and there's a lot, there's a lot more ability to sort of uh, pontificate, you know, a, a judge would never let a prosecutor opine right. in the way that members of Congress can opine. I personally find that aspect, you know, that pathway to be um, less effective than going straight at, you know, questioning the witnesses and using the witnesses to make a point rather than just making it yourself, especially because, you know, that's my biggest complaint about the Republicans is they just continue to repeat their talking points and their allegations, notwithstanding the fact that they have witnesses who are sitting there um, who either they're not asking or they're not getting any evidence from or, or in the case of the previous oversight Twitter hearing with you know Jim Baker and other former executives of Twitter, they're actually contradicting those allegations and yet they just continue to make them over and over and over. What what members of Congress say is not evidence. It's not facts. And so I feel strongly about that. So I try to use my time questioning the witnesses more than um, just simply pontificating. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's our only opportunity to speak. So sometimes, you know, if Jim Jordan is going on and on about something, um, that's the only opportunity I really have to respond well, and we look forward to you taking advantage of those opportunities again in the future. And we really appreciate you coming on to help Absolutely. us clarify these issues. Thank you so much, representing New York's 10th District Representative Dan Goldman. Thank you guys for having me. Great to be with you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, so this is super cool to me. I, we, we've been seeing a lot of 2016 bad Russian actors get their shit seized by the federal government <laughs> and, I don't know, sold at auction maybe uh, to help uh, to help fund 
uh, the, the fight, the global fight for democracy that is right now center stage in Ukraine and here in the United States in a lot of ways, but, you know, with the, the physical manifestation of it uh, over there. And, and the most recent one uh, by this klepto group, what are they called? A klepto task force or something? Yeah, cl- exactly. Klepto capture or something like that. Klepto um, capture. Well, they got Igor Sechin's plane. And uh, let's do a little background on Igor Sechin. Igor Sechin is the guy Carter Page met with. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I know you think he did. I'm I'm, I'm on the fence about that. Certainly hasn't been disproven, but I, I think we might have a, <laughs> a, a difference of opinion on the likelihood of that. But Certainly possible. Well, what we do know, what we do know is that there was a sale of Rosneft, and nineteen point five percent of that commission apparently was promised to. Uh, at this, we don't know for sure, but apparently some amount of money was promised to Carter Page in order to help lift the sanctions from the annexation of of Crimea and and all that, and and you know maybe a couple of other things that you know in exchange for. Uh, and, you know, Carter Page has a history of canoodling with Russian spies. Uh, we, we have a history of that. Um, and even though there were issues with the FISA warrant, uh, it was found to be apolitical when it was, um, you know, by the by the inspector general uh, of the Department of Justice under under Barr. But that was Horowitz or under the Trump administration. I can't remember who the attorney general was. But, uh, no, you know, nonetheless, this Sachin guy uh, was part of the part of that deal and Glencore um helped with the sell off of Rosneft and 19.5% of it went somewhere and I know that Mueller really couldn't follow all the money without crossing a red line and risk being fired so it's all sort of speculative well like a lot of things that happened in that investigation because they're counterintelligence in nature but that's who Sachin is and his plane just got repossessed so I'm very happy yeah he's definitely a bad dude and you know whether or not he, again we can save it another episode's worth of discussion about whether or not Carter Page met with him or I just, I mean, Sachin is a big, heavy hitter. I mean, you know, from his role at Rosneft, from his closeness to Putin, he's one of Putin's most conservative advisors. He is very much wired and tight, not only to Putin, but the broad sort of Kremlin elite. So, you know, my question is whether or not somebody of that stature would meet with Carter Page and Page, I think, denies it, but trying to get a straight answer about who else he might have met with who would be connected to Sechin? I mean, I, he, he has been asked that on uh, on television and getting a straight answer out of Carter Page is like trying to nail a piece of jello to the wall, in my opinion. But it's, um, you know, be that as it may, Sechin is a bad dude and getting his plane is a good thing. I, you know, like you, I'm just thrilled that the proceeds from all of this are going in a lot of ways directly to Ukraine. I mean, that's just a very uh, sweet ending of, of these things. I, I'm hoping there have been any number of yachts seized. There have been a bunch of planes seized, but I haven't seen any trains. So if we want planes, trains, and automobiles, we need to step <laughs> up the game about whether these oligarchs have, you know, sort of rolling stock that we might also seize in Vienna or something like that. But again, good to see it. Uh, appropriate to see it and uh, you know godspeed and continued success to the it is in fact task force klepto capture is mm. the announced name of it so it's very i'm sure they have coins yeah and, and this is all pursuant to the sanctions the recent sanctions after the right. invasion of ukraine this doesn't right. have to do with the sanctions for the annexation of crimea or you know any of the obama uh era sanctions this is all current now but it's it's nice to see these uh, Russians that were heavily involved in the interference in the 2016 election get some kind of, 
I guess, karma or justice. Um, I, you know, I, I tend to apply justice to things that aren't directly related to them so that I can feel better about myself on certain days. So <laughs> I call it justice by proxy. And that that's sort of at work here. Um, and now let's pivot over to more karmic justice <laughs> to more karmic justice traffic lawyer extraordinaire traffic ticket lawyer extraordinaire jenna ellis has been censured in colorado by the bar uh i think they were looking at disbarment hearings but it seems like they made some sort of a deal where they said if you come out and admit that you lied uh which she still says she didn't lie she just misrepresented things uh which is hilarious to lie about lying um but there were like 10 or 11 things that she had to admit to in order to just get a censure over there in Colorado to keep her law license so she can go back to traffic court when she wants to when all this is said and done uh so but you know she's also under probably some criminal investigation as well with the January 6th fraudulent elector scheme and i mean there's all sorts of uh wheels turning within the in jenna ellis's world right now uh, but and what kind of i guess didn't shock me again back with not being surprised but uh you know kind of shocked is she put a video out on twitter of pushing a turtle down the stairs and, call, yeah, and, and Mitch. calling it mitch mcconnell like uh, here all the democrats are like hey you know we it's, don't think we don't see eye to eye but we wish him the best and we wish him a you know a speedy recovery he's in the hospital he tripped and fell but this was just yeah. It, it what? Made me want Jenna right, right. I'm. It's not enough for me to be an admitted ten time over liar. Let me also demonstrate for the entire world what an utterly miserable person I am on the inside by this poor little you know abusive. Literally, it's this turtle rolling down the stairs, and it, it just. I, I I don't what it's. Again, it's like the inverse of what everybody would, in my opinion, try and do. If you know, either express remorse, or you know, hey, I'm innocent of this, but not like you know, double down and be a complete jerk to, on the one hand, Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, this you know, throwing a turtle down the stairs. Ridiculous. Yeah. But well, yeah, yeah, and so ten, you know, ten times, and it's out there. You can go to the uh, the Colorado Supreme Court us and find all the documents. And there's a stipulation they agreed to. There is a judgment by a judge listing, you know, ten times where she had misrepresentations. It's interesting. One, mornings with Maria on Fox. The next Spicer and Company. The next, you know, mornings with Maria on Fox. Mornings with Maria on Fox. Justice with Janine on Fox. And Greg Kelly reports on Newsmax. You know, there's some others in there on Twitter and and other things but you see this it's this just overlap between all these lies and surprise surprise being picked up and amplified by by fox and uh, fox news corporation so yeah it's it's and some of the some of the misrepresentations which are lies jenna i just i hate to tell you this but they are lies um hillary clinton still hasn't conceded the 2016 election that was one um, we have affidavits from witnesses, voter intimidation, ballots that were manipulated, all kinds of statistics that show this was a coordinated effort, all the, the big lie stuff. Um, she said, uh, with all those states, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia combined, we know that the election was stolen from Trump and we can prove that, she said. Um, she stated, uh, "We uh, second, we will present testimonial and other evidence in court to show this election was stolen. So a lot of this is big lie related. Trump won by a landslide, she told Ari Melber. Um, just lie after lie after, I'm sorry, misrepresentation after misrepresentation. Uh, and then she came out hard on Twitter. She came out swinging. All the left leftist, you know, lib, whatever <laughs> the name, uh, du jour for, for Democrats, 
saying I lied. I didn't lie. Read the thing. And I retweeted her saying, this is also a lie. Uh, it, it's just, it doesn't stop. It never stops. Yeah. And she, and it's clear that, you know, they're, they, she is assuming one, that nobody who is inclined to believe her is going to do any reading of this sanction. And that even the people who are, you know, kind of undecided are not going to go dig into it, but they do, they talk about like, well, I think her excuse was this was, you know, a, a, it was not, it was reckless. And, you know, they, the, the point is within the order, they talk about that the respondent acted with a mental state that was at least reckless. This is in footnote five of the judge's opinion and saying, quote, the, for disciplinary purposes, recklessness is treated as equivalent to a knowing state of mind with a limited exception, not applicable here. So you, across the board, yes, I completely agree with you. She knew she was lying. And I, to me, I get, you know, and we talked about a little bit about this on the, uh, on the, on the bonus uh, episode. It is in some ways a microcosm of all of these attorneys who were involved in uh, stealing the vote or trying to steal the vote in the last election and whether, you know, Michigan or uh, Wisconsin or Florida or Georgia or wherever the case may be, you had this core group of attorneys, you know, certainly including Sidney Powell and Rudy and Jenna, but a lot of others, you know, in Michigan, some were sanctioned. But in a lot of ways, either the bar discipline proceedings are still pending, or in some cases like Sidney Powell, they got thrown out a couple of weeks ago. So my concern is, you know, if, what does it look like when all these things finally come to a closure of all these attorneys who are engaged in a concerted effort to steal the election, how many of them actually suffer any sort of, you know, disciplinary action? You know, a censure is one, a censure is bad, I guess, for the history books, but she still has her law license. Cindy Powell, at least in Texas, still has her law license. These things can be appealed, but I think it raises a real question of the effectiveness of kind of the various bar entities all across the United States that if you cannot sanction people based on this egregious behavior, what do you exist for? I mean, this is mm -hmm. like a core component of our democracy in attacking it. And if that's not enough to even have your license suspended for a week, I mean, yeah. what are you doing, right? I, so, you know, we'll see. But you're right. You know, you're, they're, they're, there are plenty of criminal proceedings going on. There are a lot of other avenues where there's potentially um, some some exposure and we'll we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, and then we have this bigger problem of the court of public opinion, right? Uh, with the proof of lies, lies from Barr, lies from Jim Jordan's committee whistleblower witnesses, lies in the John Durham case, lies for the election, and which were thrown out in 63 different lawsuits um, and followed by multiple sanctions, lies Tucker Carlson's telling last week about the January 6th insurrection and how it was a tourist visit, lies from Fox News, the actual text messages and emails, and, and you have that, you're confronted with proof of the lies, and there are still people who, who are, are digging in their heels. Uh, it just shows, I feel like, the, like the cultist behavior that, that surrounds Donald Trump. And now I think, you know, it's, it's been peeling away, you know, more moderate uh, Republicans, as time goes on, I think the January 6th committee hearings shed a lot of light. I think that these Fox Dominion filings are shedding a lot of light, and a lot of people are kind of abandoning that. But you'll never get to that core base, which is like 19% of voters, you know? Yeah, and they're they're locked in, right? I mean, that 19% or whatever it is, they are locked into Trump. It doesn't matter whether it's DeSantis or whoever else might come onto the scene as a another Republican candidate. That core group of people is absolutely dedicated to Trump. And so all these things are, you know, feeding into 
either on the one hand rewriting history, on the other hand maintaining this false history. And I, I, I don't know that I don't see that ending until Donald Trump is no longer a political factor in the yeah. sort of national discourse. And I should say 19% of eligible voters, not 19% of registered voters. I just want to make that clear. Um, otherwise, you know, we'll get the emails. So thank you uh, to Congressman Dan Goldman for joining yeah, absolutely. us today. Yep. Fantastic. Uh, just incredible information. Yeah. And uh, thanks you, thanks to you, Pete. I appreciate you. Yeah. And, and we'll be back next week. And again, if you're a if you're a patron at the two dollar level, uh, we will we will be you know be talking to you this weekend for a little bit on our on our unedited, raw, totally yeah. unscripted. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge uh, bonus episodes. So Talk about whatever to that whatever happens on this odds of March. We'll uh, reflect on it. So looking forward yes. to it. Yes, indeed. All right, thanks so much, everybody. This has been Clean Up on All Forty Five. I've been Allison Gill, and I'm Pete Struck, and we'll see you next week. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>